Many experts consider the Dead Sea Scrolls to be the most important archaeological discovery of the 20th century, if not the most important one of all times. Why are they so important? And what are some other archaeological discoveries that have also proved important from a biblical viewpoint? Stay tuned for an interview with one of Christendom's best-known teachers of biblical archaeology. Lamb and Lion Ministries presents Christ in Prophecy, a program that focuses on the fundamentals of Bible prophecy, showing how current events in the news relate to biblical predictions of end-time events and the soon return of Jesus. Now, here's your host, Dr. David Reagan. Greetings in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope, and welcome to Christ in Prophecy. Once again this week, I am delighted to have uh, as my special guest, Dr. James Fleming, who is considered to be one of the most uh, uh, significant teachers of biblical archaeology in Christendom today. And uh, my colleague Nathan uh, Jones and I are going to be interviewing him about the Dead Sea Scrolls. But Nathan, first of all, I'd like to ask you a question. And that is that uh, last week we had such a fantastic interview of Dr. Fleming about the importance of Bible prophecy, not Bible prophecy, but biblical archaeology, that uh, I want those who missed it to know how they can see that on the Internet. How can they view last week's program? Well, certainly. Just go to www.lamblion.com. Every single page at the bottom of the page, there's a big button that says TV shows. Click it. It'll take you right to the show. Or in the menu, click multimedia television programs. Folks, on the wall behind me you see a photo of one of the most famous sites in all of Israel. It's called Qumran. It's located near the Dead Sea. And at the top of that barren hill are some caves where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1947. Dr. Fleming, could you tell us the fascinating story behind how the Dead Sea Scrolls were found and why they're significant? In the winter of 46-47 in the 1900s, a Muslim shepherd boy, the Tamri tribe, was with his goats and one of them went up a little cliff, and to get the goat to come down, he tossed a rock into the entrance of a small cave, and the rock went clonk instead of clack. It hit something hollow. Being curious, he went up inside, and sure enough, there was this tall pottery jar that had broken, and inside he thought he'd find gold, but this dirty, blackish, rolled-up leather, which mm. we now realize was animal skin, some of them were sheep, some even cow skin. He put three of them in his satchel, carried it back to his uh, head of their tribe, who had thought maybe they could be sold and used for leather for making shoes. Now listen to this. He went to a shop in Bethlehem. Listen to the providential name of this shop. Kando's Shoe and Antiquity Shop. <laughs> Thank the Lord, because Mr. Kendo noticed faint Hebrew letters on the back side of the scrolls. And therefore, they weren't, wouldn't it be amazing to have Bedouin wearing Dead Sea Scroll sandals if they hadn't been <laughs> properly found. And uh, even then, they weren't sure on the significance of them. But this was right at the eve of the War of Independence between Israel uh, and the surrounding Arab nations. And uh, Mr. Kando was a Syrian Orthodox Christian, and he gave them to their archbishop, who was going to go to the U.S., and thought maybe they could be sold because the community was really needing help 
financially. And an ad appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Dead Sea Scrolls for Sale, oh, would make so an ideal gift to your church or college. Fortunately, a scholar saw that, reported it to Yigil Yadin, the son of a famous archaeologist uh, named Sukenet, who uh, arranged to buy them through an intermediary. So they would, no, they would be going to some Jews at the time. And so most of them ended up in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. So what a fascinating Did they know what they found? And uh, once photographs were taken of some of them, they were sent to a famous American, uh, actually the dean of archaeology in the United States, William Foxwell Albright, who, looking at the pictures, sent back a cable to Jerusalem Congratulations on the greatest manuscript discovery of our century. Wow. There can be no doubt as to their authenticity. I would guess by the script they are about uh, the mid-first century A.D., which is exactly on target. There were additional uh, scrolls found. Uh, Several caves, the the same tribe thought they could make more money, Mm -hmm. uh, were found. Uh, They are numbered in their sequence of studies. Eleven caves ended up with scrolls in them. But caves one, two, and three produced these first ones that were mentioned in that identification of Albright. Cave four was actually found after uh, uh, an excavation of the closest archaeological site, Qumran, which you mentioned. Cave four is the one uh, we have pictured uh, behind us on the wall here. That ended up being scrolls that were not in jars. And so they ended up in 40,000 pieces. Well, I also understand that uh, when it became known that these scrolls were valuable, that uh, the Bedouins began to tear them into little pieces. They found they could get more (laughs) in their ignorance. Uh, uh, But these first scrolls were sold for peanuts at the time. Now, were all these scrolls of biblical texts? About one, th- altogether there were almost 1,000 scrolls. Many of them only small fragments remained. Uh, of the 1,000 original scrolls, a third were Hebrew Bible, okay. Old Testament texts. Minus what, two books, right? Um, Esther and Nehemiah, was it? Yes, but that's a little bit uh, tricky because a couple okay. books are tend to be first and second Samuel on the same scroll, you know. So apart of First and Second Samuel's found, but the piece was only from First Samuel, right? So these that are Old Testament books then that were discovered, what, hundreds of years before our existing copies? So these all are from about the second century BC, that old. Qumran destroyed in 69 AD. So now, now explain, what, what is the significance of finding scrolls at all? Well, we had to just trust that the Jewish scholars called the Masoretes did a good job discerning which of the scrolls that they, old scrolls that they had in the 800s AD, which of them were more accurate. Because as a, So you're saying the oldest scrolls we had before this were dated to 800 AD? No, in 800 AD, the various scrolls we had, and several scrolls were probably going back almost to, this, to, to the first century, but because errors had begun, copious errors were in some of them, they didn't want any of those to be copied so after they determined which they felt were the more accurate, the others were 
not destroyed, but buried. Yes. And so none survived until this discovery. So this took us back 800 years? And some of those, one at Qumran is probably from 300 B.C. Okay. So between 800 and 1,000 years. Were there any complete books of the Bible found? Uh, almost complete, only a few words missing in a few. Uh, the three most common books, and for which they needed more copies because they were used more frequently, are the same three that Jesus quotes most often from. Oh. Okay, what are they? Isaiah, Psalms, Deuteronomy. And those were felt to be more practical use and therefore more synagogues had than... In fact, the Isaiah scroll is the centerpiece of the yes. uh, Dead Sea Scrolls Museum. But between a dozen and 15 copies were found of those yes. three. Now let's go back to the question I asked you earlier. What else besides Hebrew texts were found there? About a third were intertestamental books that we already knew about. Okay. This would be first and second Maccabees, Jubilees, some of the books known as the Apocrypha okay. today, uh, not felt to be as old as the Hebrew Bible books, and therefore not chosen by the Jewish scribes to be part of what they considered the okay. canon. And how did they but, all get in those jars? I mean, that they, mean they, they were, were hiding them on purpose for oh, okay. preservation. They Who's hoped they? they could come back, and they temporarily hid them in those caves. And the final third okay. were documents peculiar Sorry. to the community that gave us the text, that we had no idea. They were commentaries. There was one called the War of the Suns and Light of the Suns yes. of Darkness. And were there rules and regulations? Of yes, the, the Manual of Discipline or the Rule of the Community. Okay, so now who is this? Who that's the big it? question. That's the big question. <laughs> the word Essenes is not found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Hmm. The word Essene is Hasidim. We get the word Hasidic from it. It simply means the pious ones. And you should not be surprised. They're not going to call themselves the pious ones. Well, we all know a few <laughs> pious people call themselves that. But, but, you know, it's a title used by others. They simply call themselves the Yahad, which means the community. So scholars are usually cautious. They call them, they are written by the Dead Sea community. But when Josephus describes the various kinds of groups in his day, he called them the sects, the four sects, he describes Pharisees, uh, Sadducees, but you have the Essenes listed. And he gives four pages about what the Essenes believed, and it's very close to the Manual of mm -hmm. Discipline, the rules for their order. For so them. Is, it, is it your personal opinion that the, uh, that the Qumran community did produce these scrolls? Yes. Because I know some, some believe that they were taken from the temple in Jerusalem and hidden there. There is one cave, Gary uh, 3, that only had scrolls that related to the temple. Okay. So that cave may be uh, a different origin, but they are the same carbon-14, the same kind of scroll, the same kinds of jars. Now, what about the scrolls? Uh, what do they say about the authenticity of what we have today as the Bible? Yes. The Masoretes did a good job uh, determining which were the more authentic ones. Um, there are small errors, uh, small conflicts, like um, spelling of a word, mm -hmm. things like this. Um, in one of the Psalms, we have each verse starting with a different letter. Mm -hmm acrostic kind of thing, yes. 
N is missing. The Qumran had the N. Uh, oh. You know, things like that. But not one case where there was any theological difference. Well, it's, a, it's a, 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 an amazing testimony to the preservation of God's yes. Word. And also why the Bible should not be punished simply because it survived mm -hmm. as an ancient source. Mm -hmm. um, it also helps us know that the uh, Greek translation from the 3rd century B.C. Uh, called the Septuagint uh, was very good on the first five books of Moses, very similar to the Dead Sea Scrolls on it too. So um, what was interesting is that some of the books were in Greek, some in Hebrew, some in Aramaic. What really helps a modern scholar, if you have three translations of the same verse to make an English translation, mm. what words did they use? It can give you some nuance to choose an English word, you see. So nowadays it's very important for the serious Christian student to have a translation that will have some footnotes and that will let you know the translation team also considered some of the insights that come from the Dead Sea Scrolls. For many years uh, scholars sat on those scrolls and they were very covetous of them. Yeah, and they wouldn't let anybody see them. I'd but. love to give you a good answer. Yeah, but uh, I know that uh, Biblical Archaeology Review was very involved in trying to break that open. Actually, I'm proud to be on their advisory yes. board. The um, problem was this: the original division of these scrolls was not given to as many scholars as it could. Instead of fifty, it should have been a couple hundred. Mm -hmm. So some scholars had many scrolls. Mm. And they became jealous oh, yes. as though it was their property. <laughs> it's the world's property. Right. They should have given them to their promising graduate students. But then their name gets with the translation. But all and these not things mine, have been you know? photographed, right? Hadn't they been? And so they finally got the photographs released? And it was decided that uh, we should open up the archive. Yes. And even though the scholars hadn't published some of them, the photographs of them were made available to other scholars. And how much is there that has not been translated yet? Nothing. So all has been translated? Yes. Okay. And that yes. means then that the Bible I have today is inerrant. In other words, there's no errors. In 2,000 years, we can go back 2,000 years and trust that our Bibles today no, are accurate? Yeah. You know, these little minor things like spelling and stuff mm -hmm. like that will be yeah. different. But the know. theology, but the, the story, no it's, theological we can trust the Bible. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. What an amazing story of a shepherd boy who throws a rock. <laughs> that went clonk instead of clack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that he was curious. Yeah, yeah. And that uh, even the non-biblical books gives us use of those words in other sentences. Can, a, can just an average individual go and see the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, today? Uh, is yes. A place where you can see yes, them. the shrine of the book, yes. part of the Israel Museum, has most of them. Although some That's of the in scrolls Jerusalem. in Jerusalem, some of the scrolls ended up in Jordan, and they would be in Amman, Jordan. Are there some at the Rockefeller Museum in Jerusalem? And the fragments okay. that have not been pieced together. Now it's down to about twenty-seven thousand, I think. I'm not sure. They went uh, on tour there. recently too, right? Didn't and there's tour? enough that. Um, you don't want them all on display at one time because yeah. you want to uh, actually keep them in darkness yes. and rotate how many you bring up to the light and have that with you know dimmed light and, and stuff. But yeah, they've been on, dis on uh, traveling exhibitions, which is great. Well, thanks for sharing that fascinating story with us.
Welcome back to our interview of Dr. James Fleming, who is one of Christendom's best known uh, teachers of biblical archaeology. Jim, uh, I would like for you to uh, share with us two or three other major archaeological discoveries of the 20th century. We've talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls, yes. but what about some others that may have impacted our understanding of the Bible? Uh, may I focus it on Eric because there's so many discoveries. Okay. Maybe a few that relate to the life of Jesus. All right. Well, even take uh, even more specific his last week. Jesus' life is firmly rooted in history, and some of the main players in the gospel stories, we have found something about them. For example, the inscription has been found in Caesarea that mentioned Pontius Pilate, the proconsul, the procurator of Judea, uh, found at the theater of Caesarea. Uh, we found the tomb of Caiaphas, the high priest, a bone box called an ossuary, uh, said, Joseph Kaifa, we find from Josephus, his first name was Joseph, uh, and uh, the tomb of Annas, the previous high priest, hmm. which is the, described by Josephus in the first century as being near where the Hinnom and the Kidron Valley join in Jerusalem, and there's the most ornamental tomb from the first century found is right there at that junction. Hmm. Uh, we have found a tomb, believe it or not, with a bone box in it that said Simon of Cyrenia. And next to that box was Alexander of Cyrenia, son of Simus. May I remind you, in the New Testament, we find when Simon, who was forced to carry the cross, is mentioned, he said, whose sons were Rufus and Alexander. Wow. So that certainly has to be it. Um, the man who donated the money for the Corinthian bronze gate to enter the temple called the Nicanor Gate, uh, there was a tomb found on the Mount of Olives. Nicanor, who gave the temple gate. Uh, so isn't it interesting that we have these contact points? Well, I think it's absolutely fascinating. And I'd like to go back to one of them you mentioned, and that is the... Uh, the Pilate inscription that was found at Caesarea Maritime in the uh, uh, theater there when they were excavating it. And it appeared to me, I've seen this several times, it appears to me to be like the kind of plaque that you would find in a post office in America that would say, this post office was built during the time when Eisenhower was president and so and so was governor of yes. Ohio yes. or whatever. Yes. And that's basically what it says. Tiberius is emperor and Pontius Pilate is governor. Yes, it's honoring that Pilate built a Tiberium this was a site to honor mm, Tiberius yes. Caesar. Ty, uh, Pilate is 26 to 36 A.D. And so most people put the crucifixion about, you know, midway mm -hmm. during um, his reign. Uh, but isn't it great that we have that contact point with these characters mentioned Did in this the story? Did the stone end up in a very questionable place? It was recycled. Yeah. It had probably been on a wall honoring this Tiberium. But when they were redoing the orchestra area of the theater, that was simply used. Uh, Pontius Pilate ended up in disgrace. In fact, he was banished in 36 AD and committed suicide in his banishment. Really? He was so shamed. Huh. But um, that tone was simply used as part of a stairway uh, for the platform and shaved a part of the letters off so it would fit right and things. Now, uh, 
What, what is the significance though of finding a pilot's name on something? Is this the only place we've found it outside? I think he's mentioned the writings of Josephus, isn't he? Yes. The, uh, actually, uh, to find an inscription in stone with his name on it is the only one. Other ones may come up, although his uh, reign was just that 10-year period. We have many mentioning the emperors, of course. But the local governors, you don't always find there. Now, you mentioned the bone box of uh, the ossuary of the high priest Caiaphas. Boy, that was quite a discovery, wasn't it? Yes. Now, about 2,000 bone boxes have been found. Let's tell what a bone box is. Most people don't know. You have primary burial and secondary burial. After the body decomposes, it sounds funny to us, but Jews would collect the bones. So bone boxes, usually long enough for the long bones, yep, and uh, wide enough for the skull. Uh, and a thousand of these bone boxes had names on them, a thousand no name. The relatives in the tomb, of course, knew who was in that box. But this gives us the common names in the time of Jesus. Now, what's great about them, in Judea, we don't find them before 36 B.C. and not after 70 A.D. Mm. So we have this short 100-year period when they are a popular way of burying, and it gives us what are the popular names in that 100-year period. In the collection of those bones in the bone boxes, was that so that the tomb could be used again? Yes. Over and over and over. And Now, the body in Jerusalem's climate takes about two years to decompose. In drier places like Jericho, yes. it would take longer. Um, but it gives us, for example, there's very few first names in this time. And uh, so a lot of people have the same names. And so like Simon is almost 20% of the people are named Simon. Mary (laughs) is 40% of the women are Miriam, uh, Maria, Like Deborah today. Well, you even see that in the Gospels with Mary the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, it just goes on and on. Yes. Now, if we go back to the 1800s, and I'm really excited, you read about the Hittites all over the Old Testament, but no one knew about Hittites, right, until the 1800s? Many people wondered, is this a biblical fantasy or something? In central Turkey, their capital has been found and excavated. In fact, very important discoveries were made at a place called Ugarit on the western coast of Syria, uh, called the Ugaritic tablets, uh, vassal treaties between the Hittites and their weaker neighbors, a strong king and vassal. Mm -hmm. The Hittite vassal treaties from the 12 and 1100s have the same seven points to them as the outline of the book of Exodus. Which means the book of Exodus is a treaty between a people and their God. And it's written in a way that everyone's going to see this is a covenant. It's a legal document. It sounds like again and again and again, archaeology proves that the Bible is historically accurate. It shows you it reflects a period much older than some theories are for when these books I want to ask you about one of my favorites, and that that is... uh, uh, books written around 1800 which argued that the Bible was full of myth, legend, and superstition. And the proof positive was that Jesus spent uh, three and a half years of His life preaching in three towns that never existed. And those towns were Capernaum, which was His headquarters, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. And yet archaeology has since found all three, right? Yes. And the, that's great because uh, <laughs> the Bible has been put on the map. Yeah. There been, have been so many excavations, or at least surface surveys, to know what period of pottery you find at a site. 
um, that we know where uh, 25 of these 27 towns are in the Gospels now. So still two missing, huh? We're still not sure. Uh, in John's Gospel, uh, John baptized from Bethany of Jordan as far as Anon and Salem. We're not sure about Anon and Salem yet. Do we know where John baptized, uh, for example, where, where Jesus was baptized? Uh, it would be in the southern part of the Jordan River. Well, that John's Gospel says he baptized from Bethany of Jordan. Okay. Um, there are some who think that Bethany of Jordan may have been closer to the Sea of Galilee. But your main disadvantage there is that from his baptism, he was led up into the wilderness of Judea. And John's message was in the wilderness, right? Uh, declaring in the wilderness uh, the coming of uh, God's message. And so the, for that reason... Almost all scholars feel the Bethany of Jordan was just where the Jordan enters the Dead Sea, near Qumran. Mm. Well, uh, when you mentioned the wilderness, it reminded me of something humorous. Uh, We went over to Israel several years ago, and we did a lot of shooting in the Judean wilderness, which, you know, is just... Camera shooting in the Middle East, you have to clarify. Totally barren. It's just barren as it can be. And we came back and showed this in the States at a premiere, and people came up afterwards and said, I never had any idea it looked like that. When I think of a wilderness, I think of a thickly forested area. And they had always thought that Jesus went out and spent his time in this thickly forested area uh, instead of a barren wilderness. Uh, <laughs> With the little sheep yeah. tracks all along the sides of <laughs> yes. the, the hills. And it, was, it did have uh, predator animals, but they would be lions. Yes. Uh, they would be leopards, still a couple of leopards there, uh, wolves. It's a dangerous area. That's why John's Gospel said in that wilderness that even wild beasts did not harm them. But don't think of a forested wilderness. Welcome back to our interview of Dr. James Fleming, who is considered one of Christendom's foremost teachers of biblical archaeology. Dr. Fleming, could you tell our folks how they can get in touch with you and your ministry and find out all about that? Great yes. Antiquity Center. Oh, thank you. Yes, uh, we have a, a site called diggingforit.net, and that will get onto our museum site in Georgia as well as our educational materials. I love that website name, Digging For It. And you can either spell out the word for or just put the number four, four in there, Digging For It. And that, uh, that'll open up a whole new world for you. So, folks, be sure you uh, go there. Jim, you became famous in 1969 when you discovered the location of the ancient eastern gate in Jerusalem. And I have always been fascinated by the story, and I was wondering if you would come back next week and share the story with us of how you did that. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I'll be glad to be with you. Great. Well, folks, our time is up, so uh, let me invite you to be back with us next week when we're going to interview Dr. James Fleming about uh, how he discovered that gate and what's the significance of finding the ancient eastern gate. Until then, this is Dave Reagan speaking for Lamb and Lion Ministries saying, Look up, be watchful, for our redemption is drawing near. What will happen when you die? This monumental question is answered by Dr. David Reagan's book titled, Eternity, Heaven or Hell. Many other questions concerning the afterlife are answered in this easy-to-understand book based upon the clear teachings of the Bible. Well, what about the resurrection and judgment? What will heaven be like? Is hell for real? Are there many roads to God? How can we be certain of life after death? Are you living with an eternal perspective? 
Many answers are provided to the most common questions people ask about life and death. And this book can be yours for a donation of $15 or more, plus the cost of shipping. Just call the number you see on the screen between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. Central Time, Monday through Friday, or order online at lamblion.com. And while you're at it, consider ordering an extra copy for your pastor and church library. Thank you for joining us on today's Christ in Prophecy, a presentation of Lamb and Lion Ministries, a non-denominational ministry dedicated to teaching the fundamentals of biblical prophecy and proclaiming the soon return of Jesus.